The only thing better than grinding all night for your side hustle is your roommate picking you up with Mickey D's breakfast. The perfect pickup deal. There's a deal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, taste breakfast perfection when you get a warm and savory sausage McMuffin with egg for just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. So we're going to look at the very fascinating position of the Maharal, that the principle of Gershniskaya Kekatan Shinola dummy, that a convert is like a newborn with a total fresh start, did not apply at the giving of the Torah. We'll discuss some reasons for that, some of the discussion around that, and some commentators who disagree. The Maharal's comment appears in his commentary on Rashi's commentary on the Torah called Gur Aryeh in Bereshis Perak Memvav Pasuk Yud, and it's part of a larger discussion the Maharal has about why we find prohibited marriages in the Torah. So, for example, Yaakov married two sisters, Amram, the father of Moshe, married his aunt. And so the question is, why did these great personalities engage in unions which would be prohibited by the Torah? So in the midst of that, the Maharal asks the following question. There's a well-known principle in halacha that gershin is gayer kekatan shinolad dami, a non-Jew who converts to Judaism. It's as if they're a newborn, they have a total fresh start, and they are unrelated to any of their relatives that they were biologically related to. So they're no longer related to their parents, their siblings, their children. And this is true not only if only the convert converts, so the rest of the family is still non-Jewish, but even if everyone converts. So if you have an entire family, parents and children, and they all convert to Judaism together, they are still no longer related one to the other. And Mida Oraisa, on a purely technical level, they could all marry each other. So theoretically, parents could marry children and siblings could marry each other. Now, Chazal, the rabbis came around and they modified this. They prohibited some of these unions. And just on a common sense level, it's obviously a bad idea for people that are that closely related to be intimate with each other or to be married to each other and uh, for children to be disrespecting their parents or any of that type of behavior. So you got to use common sense in these situations. But on a deoraisa level, purely technically, none of these people would be related to each other once they convert. And this is obviously a reflection of the great significance that we attach to a conversion, that this is a total fresh start for this person. They are not in by anything that happened. They've now joined the Jewish people and they get to restart like any baby that's coming fresh into the world. So it's an acknowledgement of our understanding of what a momentous event this is that someone has now joined the Jewish people. Now, based on this, the Maharal says that the Jews who went to Har Sinai and accepted the Torah were all converts at that moment. That's when the Jewish people started. So they should have all had a total reset and they should not have been related to each other with any halachic family relationships. But that does not seem to be the case because the Torah in Bamidbar, Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Yud, when it's describing the story of the Jews complaining about the mun food that they're given, so the Torah describes that they were bochel mishpechosav, they were crying 
to their families. So Rashi explains that the literal meaning is they were standing around together with their families and crying over the man. They were complaining about the man. But then he quotes that Chazal have another interpretation, and that is al iske mishpachos. They were crying about matters regarding the family, which means they were complaining about the laws of Arayos. The Torah prohibited relatives to be intimate and marry each other. So the people were complaining. They did not want to be constrained by these rules. They wanted to be able to marry whoever they wanted, including their relatives. So in addition to crying about the man, they were also crying about the laws of Arayos. But the problem is this was the generation themselves who had stood at Har Sinai and accepted the Torah. So they were all converts. They were all on a fresh slate. None of them were related to each other. So there were no laws of Arayos that were relevant to any of them. So what were they crying about? The future generations would be bound by the laws of Arayos, but that generation, which had all converted, had Kikat and Shinola dummy applied to them. It was as if they were newborns. None of them were related to each other, and they were not constrained by the laws of Arayos. So from the strength of this question, the Maharal says a major Chiddush, which is that the principle of Gershon Isgayer Kikat and Shinola dummy only applies to a willing conversion, meaning a non-Jew decides of their own free choice that they want to be part of the Jewish people and they convert. So then we apply the principle of Kikat and Shinola dummy, it's as if they're a newborn. So that would be the case in basically every conversion. But the conversion at Har Sinai, when the Jews accepted the Torah, Chazal tell us, Kafa Alehim Har Kegigis, that Hashem held the mountain over the Jews' heads and he threatened them. If you accept the Torah, then you'll live. But if you don't, then I will bury you and kill you here. So that was a coerced, a forced conversion. And when it comes to a forced conversion, we do not apply the principle of Kikatan Shinola dummy. So therefore, says the Maharal, the Jews at Har Sinai did not get a fresh start. It was not as if they were newborns. They were still related to each other. And that's why they were prohibited to marry their family relatives under the laws of Arayos because there was no new beginning. So the principle of Kikat and Shinola dummy applies to basically every conversion, but it did not apply at Har Sinai to that generation. That's the Maharal's position, and that's his big chiddish. Now, the Tzosa Choshen was very enthusiastic about this idea. In the preface to his book, Shev Shmaitza, he has a long discussion of Agarita material, and he brings two proofs to the Maharal's idea. The first is that the Mishnah in Yevamos on Samach Aleph records a debate between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. How many kids do you have to have to fulfill the mitzvah of pru or vu of having children? So Beis Hillel says it has to be a boy and a girl, and Beis Shammai says it has to be two boys. Beis Shammai's proof is from Moshe, who had two sons, and then he separated from his wife. So Beis Shammai says it must be that Moshe had fulfilled the mitzvah of pru or vu, otherwise he would not have separated from his wife. Now, the problem is that the Gemara records a debate. What happens if a non-Jew has children and then he converts? Does he need to have more children in order to fulfill the mitzvah of pru urvu? And Reish Lakish's position is that, yes, he needs to have new children after he converts because of Gershnis Geyer, Kikat and Shinola, dummy. So the question now is, Beis Shammai are saying that Moshe had two children before the giving of the Torah, 
And that was a fulfillment of his mitzvah of pruervu, which goes diametrically opposed to Reish Lakish's position that a non-Jew who has children and then converts did not fulfill the mitzvah of pruervu. Moshe had children before he converted at Harsinai, and then he converted at Harsinai. So according to Reish Lakish, he would not have fulfilled his mitzvah of pruervu. Says the Shev Shmaitza, according to the Maharal, this makes sense because Reish Lakish is talking about a regular convert who converts willingly. So there we apply Gershnis Geyer Kekat and Shinola dummy, and he has to have new children after he converts. But the generation that converted at Harsinai, that was a forced conversion. So we do not apply Kikat and Shinola dummy. And so Moshe would have fulfilled his mitzvah of Pru Urvu even with the children that he had before his conversion because he never had a fresh start. It was never like he was a newborn and unrelated to his children. So the Maharal's approach would make sense of Beis Shammai's position that Moshe fulfilled his mitzvah of Pruervu with the two sons he had before the giving of the Torah. Second, says the Shev Shmaitza, that based on the Maharal's approach, we can answer the question of Tosvos and Yevomos on Samech Beis. The Torah tells us that Miriam spoke Lashon Hara about her brother Moshe, and she said that he had separated of his own choice from his wife. So Tosvos asks that Moshe separated from his wife Tzipporah at the giving of the Torah. Tzipporah doesn't speak Lashon Hara until way later in Parshas Baaloscha, way later in the Torah when they've already traveled a good bit and they're in Chatseros. So what precipitated Miriam to suddenly speak Lashon Hara so long after Moshe had separated from Tzipporah. Why did she wait all this time and not speak Lashon Hara about him as soon as he separated from his wife? So Tosos answers based on a medrash that Miriam didn't realize up until that moment. She overheard Tzipporah say it. So she only found out much later and then she spoke Lashon Hara. Says the Shev Shmaita, according to the Maharal, we could give a bit of a more sophisticated answer. Originally, Miriam knew that Moshe had separated from his wife, but she thought it must be by the command of Hashem because since everyone converted at Harsinai, Moshe would not have fulfilled his mitzvah of pru urvu, like Reish Lakish said. So the fact that he separated from his wife could only be that Hashem had told him to separate from her. Otherwise, Moshe would never have abandoned the mitzvah of pru urvu. But once they came to Kivros Atava and all the people complained about the Mun and they complained about Arayos. So then Miriam found out that there was no Kikat and Shinola dummy when it came to Matan Torah, to the giving of the Torah at Harsinai. So now she realized that Moshe was still related to his sons. He had fulfilled the mitzvah of Pru Urvu. Then she backtracked and said, maybe Hashem did not command Moshe to separate from his wife. He did it on his own because he already fulfilled the mitzvah of Pru Urvu. So that's why she spoke Lashon Hara about him at that point, way after he had separated from his wife. So this is an approach to the Chumash that, you know, this great figure held this halachic position and the other one held differently. Some people love it. Some people can't stand it. You could take your pick. But it's interesting that the Tzos does engage in that in the preface to the Shev Shmaitza. Now, the Klechemda in Parshas Vayigash asks a very significant question on the Tzos because what he's doing in the Shev Shmaitza expands the Maharal's idea to include not only the Jewish people, but also Moshe. In other words, the Maharal only said, 
that the Jews who accepted the Torah at Harsinai did not have Kekat and Shinola dummy because they were coerced. But he never applied that idea to Moshe. The Shev Shmaitza is including Moshe also in the category of people who did not have Kikot and Shinola Dami applied to them. And the Klechemda raises the obvious problem that Moshe was on top of the mountain. So even though the rest of the Jewish people were underneath and they were coerced to accept the Torah, Moshe was the one exception. He did accept the Torah willingly because he was on top of the mountain. So he should have had the rule of Kikot and Shinola Dami applied to him. And that would throw off the whole Shev Shmeitz's analysis that Moshe fulfilled the mitzvah of Pruervu with the two sons he had before Matan Torah because there was no reset of his relationship. He too did not have Kikot and Shinola dummy, and that goes against the facts that Moshe willingly converted at Matan Torah. So in order to explain the Shev Shmaitz's position, the Klechemda says a brilliant approach, and this explains the essence of what the Maharal is saying. So he tries to understand what is the distinction the Maharal is making between a willing conversion versus a forced one. And the Klechemda says something very beautiful, which is that when something is forced, it shows that this is not optional, this is something which is absolutely necessary to the very existence of this being. Meaning a person is forced to breathe if they try not to breathe because breath is not incidental. Oxygen is not ancillary to life. It's essential for life. You cannot live without oxygen. Therefore, a person is forced to breathe. But a person is not forced to go on vacation because that's incidental to life. So being forced is an indication of how central something is to an organism's ability to live. And the same is true, says the Klechemda of the giving of the Torah, that Hashem wanted to force them in order to make it clear that the Torah is not something optional or incidental, something we could live without or not live without, but it's something which is absolutely vital and necessary to the very existence of the Jewish people. So based on that, says the Klechemda, that explains the Maharal's distinction between a forced conversion versus a willing conversion, because the only time we say Kikot and Shinola dummy, that this convert is as if they have a fresh start, they're unrelated to whatever happened before that, is when they willingly convert. A non-Jew chooses to abandon his earlier life and join the Jewish people. So we say that because they're choosing to join the Jewish people, that's a new beginning, it's a fresh start. They're leaving behind everything that was before in their life, and they're now kikan shinola dummy like a newborn. But when the Jewish people converted at Harsinai, it was actually the opposite experience. They were forced to accept the Torah because that is the essence of what it means to be a Jew. Because they were the descendants of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, they were the Jewish people. They had to accept the Torah. There was no way for them to live without the Torah. So it wasn't a fresh start for them. It was them becoming more of who they actually were. It was the Jewish people assuming more of their essential nature as Jews. They had to get the Torah. They couldn't live without it. So it doesn't make sense to say it was Kikot and Shinola dummy. It was like a fresh start and a newborn when the opposite was happening. They were becoming more of who they originally were, which is the Jewish people. For whatever reason, they weren't fit to accept the Torah before that moment. But at the giving of the Torah, they became more of themselves and not something new. So the Klechemda has a 
beautiful explanation for the Maharal's distinction. And based on that, says the Klechemda, it doesn't matter that Moshe was on top of the mountain instead of being under it and that he willingly accepted the Torah. The same thing was true of Moshe. Since he was part of the Jewish people, he was a descendant of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, so he too couldn't live without the Torah. It wasn't a new fresh start for Moshe that he was accepting the Torah now, but it was rather a reflection of who he was in his core, that essentially he was a Jew and he had to accept the Torah, he couldn't live without it. So there was no kikon shenola dummy, even for Moshe. So the Klechemda is saying something very important, which is the Maharal is not making a technical distinction, that if the conversion is forced, there's no kikon shenola dummy. But if the conversion is optional, willing, then there is kikon shenola dummy. The Maharal is saying something more profound, that it depends on whether this conversion is a reflection that the convert is a new person, or that they're becoming more of who they originally were. And all of the Jews who converted at Matan Torah, including Moshe, their conversion was all a reflection of who they were essentially and becoming more of themselves. So it didn't matter that Moshe technically converted of his own free choice without being forced. The fact that he was part of the Jewish people meant that we do not apply Kikot and Shinola dummy, and that explains why the Shev Shmaitza expands the Maharal's idea that there was no Kikot and Shinola dummy at Har Sinai to include even Moshe, who technically converted of his own free will, but the same, of course, was true of Moshe, that he could not live without Torah because he was a member of the Jewish people. So this is all a very brilliant analysis from the Klechemda. It explains the Shev Shmaitza, why Moshe would also be included in the category of people who did not have a fresh start. And most importantly, it gives us a very solid reason for the Maharal's distinction between a forced conversion and a willing conversion based on this idea that something which is forced is fundamental to the human being and it's not a reflection of something new to them, but something that they never could have existed without. Now, interestingly enough, the Klechemda's idea about the centrality of coercion and that the Torah was forced on the Jewish people as a sign of its importance, which is counterintuitive, we tend to think that things which people choose willingly are more important to them than something which is forced on them. But uh, this idea that coercion is an indication of something being more central is actually a popular idea of the Maharal himself. In Gur Aryeh on Shmos Perak Tes Zion Pasuk Chav Beis, on this Pasuk of Kafalem Harkagigis, the Maharal himself expands on this idea that coercion is an indication of how important and central the Torah is to our lives. And based on that, he answers the question that Tosvos asks on Shabbos, Daf Pechesamad Aleph, that the Jews had already said Nasev and Nishma before Hashem lifted the mountain on top of them. So what was the point of forcing them to accept the Torah when they had already willingly accepted it? So Tosfos has an answer. There's many other answers given in the commentators. But the Maharal says that this was because Hashem wanted to show them that even though they willingly accepted the Torah, the Torah was going to be forced on them as an indication of the fact that they couldn't live without the Torah. It's like oxygen. There's no way to live without it. It's something which is inherent to the human being. And that was the point of this forced moment to show them how important and central the Torah is. 
And in the new Mechon Yerushalayim edition of the Maharal from Rabbi Hartman, in the footnotes, he quotes a number of other places where the Maharal revisits this same theme. So that's a very important idea in the Maharal, and the Klechemda uses it to explain the distinction the Maharal makes between a forced conversion, which is just the person becoming more of themselves, versus an optional willing conversion, which is the person becoming a new person. So this explanation of the Klechemda is very much rooted within the Maharal's own worldview. Now, interestingly enough, the Shev Shmaitza, in his discussion of this, also focuses very much on the Maharal's idea that forced things are more central than willingly accepted things. But he differs a little bit with the Maharal in his presentation of it. And this is developed nicely in a commentary on the Shev Shmaitza, the Nesiv Shmaitza. And he points out that there are actually three different positions over here. The Maharal, as we just saw, accepts the idea that when the Jews said Nasa Venishma, that was willing. They were accepting the Torah of their own free will. But then after that, Hashem held the mountain over them and forced them to accept the Torah. So there was both a willing acceptance followed by a coerced acceptance of the Torah. And we explained according to the Maharal why that's important. The Shev Shmaitza basically agrees with this, but he believes that even when the Jews said Nasev Nishma, it was also coerced. That was not a free choice on their part. And the reason for that is, based on a very interesting idea, he says that the mun they were eating was almost like a magical potion that it was forcing them from within to accept the Torah. So the mun went inside of them and like some sort of truth serum, it made them follow the laws of the Torah and be forced to accept the Torah. They weren't able to fight against the mun. And this idea comes from the Sefer HaMagid of the Beis Yosef. Uh, Malach spoke to the Beis Yosef and it says there that the mun that the Jews ate forced them to accept the Torah without any choice in the matter. And furthermore, the Shev Shmaitza quotes in the Yalkut Ruveni, it says that the mun came from the Sar HaTorah, the angel of Torah. So when you're eating the food of the angel of Torah, this tremendous spiritual nourishment that even the angels live off of, so of course you're not going to have any physical desires or material concerns from that kind of food. It's like a spiritual vitamin, so it went right into the Jews and motivated them to only be committed to the study of Torah and mitzvot, such so that when Hashem offered them the Torah, there was no way for them to refuse it. So according to the Tzos, there were actually two things which forced the Jews to accept the Torah. One was the mountain Hashem held over them, and the second was eating the mun, which had changed their inside into totally spiritual people who couldn't say no to the giving of the Torah. Now, very brilliantly, the Shev Shmaitza adds that this sheds light on the more profound criticism that the Jews had of the Mun. It wasn't just that they didn't like the Mun, they didn't want to be eating the same thing over and over again, but there was a real emotional problem with the Mun which is exactly this point. They didn't want to live as totally spiritualized people who were forced to do the right thing. And he points out that when they come to the place where they complain about the man, it's called kivros hatava. And the Torah explains because hisavu tava, they had a desire. So the Al-Sheikh has a comment that it wasn't that they actually had a desire, but hisavu, they desired a ta'ava. In other words, they were upset that they didn't have desires. 
Says the Shev Shmaitza, what that means is they were upset that they were eating the spiritual food and it was changing them into spiritualized people without any free will to choose between good and evil. They were just going like drones and following the laws of the Torah. So his Avu Taba, they wanted a desire to do the wrong thing and to not be totally controlled by the Mun, this spiritual food which was making them so pious. So that was the depth of their complaint. They said, we accepted the Torah with Nasa Nishma, but we had no choice to do otherwise. We don't want to be the people who have no choice. We want to accept to love the Torah of our own free will. This is a very profound reading. It's not just that they had a simplistic concern that they didn't like the food, but they had a philosophical problem. They didn't want to be forced to love the Torah. They wanted to choose to love the Torah. And that's what they meant when they said, Zacharnu es we remember the fish that we ate in Mitzrayim for free. It doesn't mean free that we didn't have to pay for it, but it means free that we didn't have to give up our whole desires and all of our personality to it. We were able to eat the fish and then make our own decisions, which was not true of the month. So this was the whole criticism that they had. And now the Shev Shmaitza ties this all back in with the original Maharal we started with, because there's a major question on this Rashi of Bochel Mishpachosav, that the Jews were crying because of the prohibition of Arayos. So the commentators in Rashi on Bamidbar, the Re'em and the Maharal, they wonder, what does this have to do with the Mun? The story in the Torah is that the Jews were complaining about the Mun. What does that have to do with crying about Arayos? Says the Shev Shmaitza, based on his whole analysis, together with the first Maharal, now we can put it all together. The Jews' complaint with the Mun was that it forced them to accept the Torah. And the forced part of the acceptance of the Torah was what made it that they were not Kekat and Shinola dummy. So this is brilliant. Now that the Jews were complaining about the fact that the Mun had forced them to accept the Torah, they also complained about the Arayos, which were prohibited to them. Because had they been able to accept the Torah willingly, then it would have been Kekot and Shinolad, they all would have been reborn, no one would have been related to each other, and they could have married whoever they wanted. Because the Mun forced them to accept the Torah, therefore they were still prohibited to the Arayos, because there was no Kekot and Shinolad, and that's why the two complaints went together hand in hand. So this is a very brilliant analysis analysis from the Shev Shmaitza. Now, the Shev Shmaitza points out the reason why the Jews in that generation were wrong, and it was better to be forced to accept the Torah than to willingly accept it, is because as the Maharal explained, things which are forced are more important than things which are willingly accepted. So they had made a mistake. So as we've seen, both the Maharal and the Shev Shmaitza are in agreement about the central importance of the fact that the Torah was forced and it was not accepted willingly. But they disagree on a slight aspect. According to the Maharal, Nasev and Nishma was done willingly. And then Hashem held the mountain over them and forced them to accept it. So first it was a willing acceptance, followed by a coerced acceptance. But according to the Shev Shmaitza, Nasev and Nishma was also coerced by eating the man. So the whole thing was coerced. There was no willing acceptance at all. Now, there is even a third position within this whole framework, and that is the Mesha Chachma. 
because the Shev Shmaitza believes that not only were the Jews forced to accept the Torah in that generation, but he says, because of the man, it was established in their hearts, the love of Torah and mitzvos. And this remains for all time for the wise ones. In other words, according to the Shev Shmaitza, anyone who accesses knowledge of Torah, it's as if they're coerced to follow the laws of the Torah for all time. So the same energy that was there in the first generation of Matan Torah is also present for anyone who's totally immersed in the study of Torah. So the Nesiv Shmaitza points out that the Meshachachma disagrees with this approach. And he discusses this in two places, in his preface to Sefer Shmos and also in Shmos Perak Yud Tes Pasuk Yud Zion. And Meshachachma also has a very nice analysis of this whole issue of coercion versus free will. And he says it differently than the Maharal. He explains that even though free will is a central component of being a Jew and Avodah Sashem to overcome our negative traits. But the purpose of free will is to come to a point where a person has totally controlled their negative impulses and they do good deeds as if by coercion, meaning they have no real choice because they've perfected themselves so much that they have to do the right thing. So the purpose of free will is to overcome it and to get to a level where the person is coerced to do the right thing. Now, says the Meshachachma, when the Jews accepted the Torah at Harsinai, so Kafaleim Har Kegigis, Hashem held the mountain over them. And he explains this very beautifully. He says it's a metaphor. Hashem didn't actually hold the mountain over them, but it means that Hashem revealed his presence so clearly and so dramatically that no one had any free choice about whether or not to accept the Torah. They were overwhelmed by the magnitude and grandiosity of Hashem's presence and their understanding was so profound that they were forced to accept the Torah. So that's the meaning that the Jews were forced to accept the Torah. Now, as we just said, ideally coercion is the better form of performing mitzvos than doing so of one's free will. But the Meshachachma points out that's only if the person has worked on themselves and reached a level where they've overcome their free will. The Jews who stood at Har Sinai had not accomplished that. They had not reached that level on their own. They were just thrown into it. Suddenly Hashem had appeared and forced them to accept the Torah through his presence. But there was no lifelong struggle to get to that point. And therefore, says the Meshachachma, they had to come down from that point. They were not able to stay at that point because they would have lost any ability to grow as people. And that's what it means, says the Meshachachma, when Hashem commands them after Har Sinai, Shuvu lachem lo'ohalechem, go back to your tents which according to Chazal means that they were supposed to go back to family life, to having relations with their wives, meaning they were not to stay on the level of Matan Torah. They were supposed to go back to a physical, material life and to grow as people from there. So according to the Meshachachma, even though the Jews who stood at Har Sinai reached the level of coercion in accepting the Torah, but because it was unnatural to them, they had to go back to normal routine life and from there try to become better. But the one exception, of course, was Moshe. 
he had reached that level on his own hard work. And that's why he, of all of them, remained at that level. He never went back to being with his wife because he was able to stay on the high level of Matan Torah for the rest of his life because he had earned it. So that's the Meshach Chachma's analysis of this whole process. So that differs with the Shev Shmaitza because he said that once they attained the level of coercion at Matan Torah, that continues forever. Whereas according to the Meshach Chachma, there was an explicit command from Hashem of Shuvu Lachem Lo Halechem that you cannot remain at this level of coercion, but you now have to go back to living a life of Torah within the material world and choosing between good and bad and of your own free choice, you have to grow as Torah people. So those are three different analyses of this very fascinating issue of the coercion at Matan Torah. Now, to come back to the Klechemda's analysis, and there's another part that's worth discussing. According to the Shev Shmaitza, as explained by the Klechemda, the Maharal's idea that there was no Kikotan Shinola dummy at Matan Torah applies not only to the Jewish people, but also to Moshe, even though he was not forced to accept the Torah, and we saw the reason for that. Now, the Ostrovitzer Rebbe, the great Hasidic genius in his book, Meir Ene Chachamim Chelek Aleph Simen Yud Ches, so he disagrees with the Klechemda on this point. And the, he analyzes the Gemara in Zvachim on Kuf Aleph Amud Beis. The Gemara is trying to figure out who diagnosed Miriam's Tsaras because you need a Kohen and there doesn't seem to have been an eligible Kohen. The Gemara says if it was Moshe, Moshe is a czar. He's a non-Kohen, so he could not have diagnosed the Tsaras. And if it was Aaron, so the Gemara says Aaron Karovhu. Aaron was Miriam's brother and a Karov, a relative, cannot see Tsaras. So which Kohen would have diagnosed the Tsaras? So the Marsha asks, why do you have to say a different reason for Aaron than for Moshe? That Aaron was her brother, but Moshe was a non-Kohen. They're both her brothers. Why didn't the Gemara just say that Moshe and Aaron were her brothers? So the Marsha says that in truth, the Gemara could have said that, but it was just telling us the reality that Moshe was a non-Kohen. So the Ostrovitzer Rebbe said that based on the Maharal, there's a very brilliant resolution to this Gemara. And that is unlike the Maharsha, that Moshe was not disqualified for being her brother because the Maharal says that there was no Kikotan Shinola dummy at the giving of the Torah because the giving of the Torah was coerced. Says the Ostrovitzer Rebbe, that only applied to the rest of the Jewish people, but not to Moshe who was on top of the mountain. So Aaron did not have Kikotan Shinola dummy because he was under the mountain. And that's why he remained Miriam's brother. But Moshe was on top of the mountain and he willingly accepted the Torah. So he did have Kikotan Shinola dummy. And therefore he was no longer related to Miriam. So that's why the Gemara could not have said that Moshe was her brother because that status was lost. Moshe was like a newborn. He was not related to anybody. And that's why the Gemara had to say that Moshe is a czar. He's a non-Kohen when it comes to Tzara. So this is a very brilliant analysis of that Gemara, but it clearly indicates that the Ostrovitzer Rebbe held that the Maharal's idea only applies to the rest of the Jewish people not to Moshe, who willingly accepted the Torah, and therefore 
he was Kikan Shinola Dami, and that goes against the Klechemda's understanding of the Shev Shmaitza. Now, the Nesiv Shmaitza points to a very interesting Marsha in Avodazara Bez Ahmed Bez on the Gemara of Kafalem Harkigigis, and this Marsha indicates that he disagreed with the Ostrovitzer Rebbe. The Marsha asks that why did Hashem hold the mountain over them and say that he would bury them if they didn't accept the Torah? The Gemara on the next page in Avodazara Gimel Ahmed Aleph says that all of creation was conditional. That if the Jews don't accept the Torah, all of creation would return to chaos and nothingness. So why did Hashem say that he would bury the Jews when if they didn't accept the Torah, all of creation would have been destroyed and disappeared that moment? So the Marsha gives two answers. First, he says that maybe these two threats were the same thing. In other words, Hashem was holding the mountain over them to remind them of the condition that all of creation was based on, that they had to accept the Torah, and if they didn't, then creation would destruct. So according to that approach, both Gemaras are expressing the same idea, just in slightly different words. But then the Marsha quotes from the Paneach Razi that he said that there's a different approach. There was no concern that all of creation would destroy because Moshe, Aaron, and their sons were definitely going to accept the Torah. They were all willing to accept the Torah. So creation was going to be fine because there was a small group willing to accept the Torah. It was only a question of whether the rest of the Jewish people would accept the Torah. And for that, Hashem had to lift the mountain above them. So according to the Paneach Razi, it sounds like not only Moshe willingly accepted the Torah, but also Aaron and their sons accepted the Torah willingly. And if we use the Ostrovitzer Rebbe's approach, it would come out that all of those people should have had Kikotan Shinola dummy. So therefore the Gemara should not be calling Aaron Miriam's brother after the giving of the Torah. So the Ostrovitzer Rebbe seems to hold that only Moshe willingly accepted the Torah, not Aaron, but the Paneach Razi holds that Moshe, Aaron, and their children all accepted the Torah willingly. Now, to come back to the Klechemda, there's another point worth discussing. In the new Machon Yushalayim Maharal, Rabbi Hartman in footnote 42 quotes from Rav Hutner in the Pachad Yitzchak in Shavuos Mamar Chaf that he explains the distinction a little differently than the Klechemda. As we saw, the Klechemda explains the difference between a forced conversion and a willing one based on the idea that something which is forced is inherent and essential to the person, and it doesn't reflect them becoming a new person, it reflects them becoming more of themselves. So Rav Hutner explains this in a similar way, but a little different. He explains that the difference between force and willingness is that something which is coerced only can be effective, can be valid, if it reflects the inner desire of the person. So for whatever reason, they were not able to actualize it on their own, and they were coerced into it, but it's only valid if it reflects what their actual inner desire is. So when the Jews were forced to accept the Torah at Har Sinai, it must be reflective of their inner desire as the descendants of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, that they really wanted to accept the Torah, and 
that's why the coerced acceptance was valid. So if so, that's a very backward, historic-looking conversion because the whole validity of the conversion was based on their lineage, where they came from. Now, the principle of Gershnis Garek Ikan Shinola Dami is a very forward-looking principle that we say because the convert chose to leave their original life and the family they came from and join the Jewish people, so as a reflection of their life choice, we in turn view them as a totally new person who's totally reborn upon their joining the Jewish people. But that only applies to a regular conversion where the convert chose to go ahead and convert. So in reflection of that, we should view them as reborn. But the Jews at Har Sinai, where it was a backward-looking conversion, the validity of the conversion was based on who they were and where they had come from. So you can't say that we view them as a new person when the whole conversion is based in essence on who they were before they converted. So that's why we don't apply the rule of Kikat and Shinolad in the case of Matan Torah. So again, this is a similar formulation to the Klechemda, but with a little bit of a different emphasis. Now, to end this discussion, I'd like to look at some commentators who view things differently than the Maharal. So let's begin with Rav Yosef Engel. He agrees with the basic idea of the Maharal that there was no Kikot Shinola dummy at Matan Torah, but he has a totally different formulation of this. This is quoted by Rav Herschel Schechter in his Sefer Eretz HaTzvi, Simen Yud Zion. And he's discussing there that a convert to Judaism has to accept not only the Torah and to live a life of halacha, but it's also part of the conversion process to accept to join the Jewish people. The convert has to want to be part of the Jewish people, which is an interconnected nation of people who are all bound together by the Torah. So in the midst of that, he quotes from Rabbi Yosef Engel in his drushas that he explains the distinction between Matan Torah and other conversions in a different way. And it's based on the idea that why do we say Gershnis Gaya Kikat and Shinola Dami in a regular conversion? It's because the convert is going from being an individual to now being part of the nation of Israel and joining a group changes their whole status. So they go from being a complete unit unto themselves to now being a part of the Jewish people. And that is the rebirth which cancels any statuses or relationships that they had had prior to that. So based on that, says Rabbi Yosef Engel, that only applies when a non-Jew is joining the pre-existing Jewish community. When the Jews went to Matan Torah, they were each their own little autonomous self. And at that moment, they were all combined into the Jewish people. But no one person joined a pre-existing Jewish people that would have altered their status. So they all came in with their status intact. And he bases this on certain halachic categories when it comes to the Karban Pesach. But that's his basic idea. He doesn't understand why the Maharal thinks that Gersh Niskayak Yikant Shinola Dami should depend on whether the conversion was willing or coerced. So he adopts the same idea that there was no Gersh Niskayak Yikant Shinola Dami when it came to Matan Torah, but for a very different reason, because there was no pre-existing group 
that individuals were joining into. Now, it's also worth mentioning because we went into some depth into the Maharal's view of why coercion was so important and so central to the giving of the Torah. So Rav Salavechik in The Lonely Man of Faith has a footnote where he discusses this whole issue. And at the end, he makes a very profound comment. And he explains the whole concept of coercion very briefly, but in a totally different way than the Maharal. He explains that it lies in the idea that covenantal man feels overpowered and defeated by God, even when he appears to be a free agent of his own will. So this is a very central theme in Rav Soloveitchik's philosophy, and he comes back to this throughout his writings. He's always interested in the tension between our autonomy and our creativity and independence in the spiritual realm versus our submission and defeat towards God. And he explores this in a number of different ways, but for him, that's the key point of the coercion at Harsinai to indicate that even when it looks like we do things out of our own free will and our own autonomy and independence, but for Judaism, it's always rooted in that feeling of being overpowered and defeated and submission to God. So that was the tension, the same dialectic that was playing out at Matan Torah, where they both accepted it freely and were forced to accept it, meaning these two themes coexisted at the very dawn of Jewish history. So those are some ways to look at some of these themes differently than the Maharal. Now, the biggest disagreement with the Maharal is that there are a number of commentators who flat out say that the principle of Gersh Dami did apply at Matan Torah, and all of those relationships were totally reset, and they were no longer considered halachically to be family. So the first one is the Tosvos Yom Tov, the classic commentary on the Mishnah. This is in Pirkei Avos Perek Hey Mishnah Chaf Beis. And ironically, the Tosos Yomtov was actually a student of the Maharal. So apparently he disagreed with his teacher on this point. The Mishnah there is listing all sorts of things that come at different ages. And it comments that Ben Arboim Libina, at 40 years old, comes understanding. So the Bartanura quotes from the Gemara that the source for this is because after 40 years in the desert, Moshe says to the Jewish people, Today you've gotten understanding. So you see it takes 40 years to get understanding. So the Tosos Yom Tov asks that even though they had been in the desert for 40 years, but many of them were much older than 40 years old because they may have come into the desert at 10 or 20 years old. So they were already 50 or 60 years old. So how is this a proof that a regular person at 40 years old attains understanding? So he suggests possibly because it includes everybody, even the babies who went into the desert, so they were 40 years old. But his second answer is, he says very simply, that when the Jews accepted the Torah, they converted, and Gershonis Geir Kikon Shinola Dummy. So it was as if everybody had a total reset, they were newborns at that moment. And therefore, 40 years later, when Moshe said they got understanding, we can derive from that situation to all 40-year-olds that they attain understanding at 40 years old because the Jews were all like newborns at the beginning of their time in the desert. So you see clearly that according to the Tosos Yom Tov, there was dummy at Matan Torah. Also, the Meshachachma and his comments to Dvarim Perek Hey Pasuk Chav Vav clearly holds like the Tosos Yom Tov because he quotes that the Chasim Sofer said that he always wondered where is the source for this principle of Gershniskar Kikon Shinola Dami? Where did Chazal learn that out from? 
So the Meshachachma says that he has a simple solution to this, which is after the giving of the Torah, Hashem tells the people, Shuvu lachem lo go back home. And the Gemara understands that it means go resume your natural marital relations. In other words, go back to your marriages. Says the Meshachachma, but there's a big problem because many of these people were probably married to Arayos, to close relatives, which had been permitted to them up until that point. And the example is even Amram, one of the leaders of that generation, was married to his aunt. So how could Hashem just give them a blanket statement, go back home and engage in marital relations, when some of these couples had to be separated now since they were Arayos? Says the Meshachachma must be because they converted, there was now a reset. Nobody was relatives with each other at that point, even if they were biological relatives, but halachically they were now all newborns and every couple could go back home and resume their marriages. So that's the source for and that is obviously very clear that he assumes that Matan Torah did have unlike the Maharal. And finally, we'll end with two additional answers to the Maharal's question, which precipitated this whole discussion, which is, why were the Jews crying about the laws of Arayos if they had converted? So there was a reset and they were all permitted to marry each other. So the Chabiner Rav in the Chuvis Dovev Meisharim Chelek Aleph Simen Kuflamid Vav, he explains that the only time we say is when this convert has both Mila, the circumcision, and Tvila, they go to the mikvah. So such a drastic change from being a non-Jew to being a Jew resets everything and all their previous relationships are canceled. But in the case of the Jews at Matan Torah, it was a little different because the Medrash says that they already had the Mila before the giving of the Torah in order to eat the carbon Pesach. So the Mila of the people in that generation was not part of their conversion process. It was part of their eating the carbon Pesach process. And the Radvaz writes in a tshuva that even though someone that only has a Mila and not a Tvila is not considered a Jew because they haven't had a full conversion, but they're also not considered a full non-Jew. So they're somewhere in the middle in this quasi-state of being not a non-Jew, but not yet a Jew. So when the Jews came to Harsinai, they were in this quasi-state because they had the Mila, but they did not have the Tvila. So when the giving of the Torah was the equivalent of the Tvila, but that was not enough of a drastic change to apply so that's why there was no in that case. So again, he agrees with the Maharal that there was no at Matan Torah, but for a totally different halachic reason. So this is a very interesting approach from the Chabina Rav. The issue is it does seem to go explicitly against the Rambam's presentation of the conversion at Matan Torah because the Rambam in Hilchsi Surabiya, Perak Yud Gimel, explicitly says that Matan Torah was the role model for all subsequent conversions. And in Halacha Beis, he talks about the Brismila, which happened to that generation. And he also notes that it happened in Egypt before they accepted the Torah. But the Rambam says very clearly that this was part of their process of conversion. And that's where we derive that subsequent converts require Brismila. So that seems to go against the Chabina Rav's idea 
that the bris milah of the generation that accepted the Torah was not part of their conversion process. Also, and the Rambam points this out in that discussion, this answer would only seem to apply to the men, but the women did not need a bris milah. So according to the Chabina Rav, they should have had Gershnis Karikakan Shinola dummy. So there do seem to be some issues with this. Now there's a similar approach from Rav Shlomo Fisher in his Drushos Beis Yishai, Chelik Aleph Simon Tess. And he also suggests that the conversion at Matan Torah was not a full conversion. It was more of a partial conversion. And that's why there was no Kikat Shinola dummy. And this idea comes from a big Chiddush of Reb Naftali Trup, who was the Rosh Hashiva in the Chafetz Chaim's Yeshiva in Radin. So he made a well-known distinction between Kedushas Yisrael, the sanctity of being a Jew, which is what obligates you to follow Halacha, versus told us, Israel, that you're a member of the nation of the Jewish people, that you're born into the Jewish people. And he argued that Kedushas Yisrael, the obligation of mitzvos, comes through the father, whereas being part of the Jewish people comes through the mother. So even though we always think that Judaism only goes through the mother, it's matrilineal descent, he's saying that there is a component which comes through the father, and he analyzes this in Chidusha HaGranat, Yevamos, Simen Yud Aleph, and Ksubis, Simen Chav Ches. And in the piece in Yevamos, he himself points out that this would affect how the conversion at Matan Torah happened. But Rav Fisher explains it very nicely, that in a normal conversion, the convert needs to get both aspects of being a Jew, that they're obligated in mitzvos and that they're part of the family of the Jewish people. So in order to obligate them in mitzvos, that's exactly what the conversion does. It transforms them from being a non-Jew into being a Jew. So now they're obligated in mitzvos like every other Jew. But how do you transform someone into a family? How do you have someone join a family to which they were not born into? So that's why we apply the principle of Gershonis Garikikon Shinola dummy. It says if they're a newborn, they're being reborn right now, and this new birth is being done through Hashem to bring them into the family of the Jewish people. So the principle of Gershonis Garikikon Shinola dummy is specifically tied in to the aspect of joining the family of the Jewish people, which for born Jews comes through the mother, but for a convert, it comes through being reborn at the moment of conversion, as if, so to speak, Hashem is now birthing them into the family of the Jewish people. So this explains why there was no application of the principle of Kikot and Shinolad at the giving of the Torah, because they didn't need that aspect of it. They were, of course, family of the Jewish people. That was their whole identity and the whole reason they were given the Torah because they came from the family of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So there was no need to transform them into the family of the Jewish people. That component was there. The only thing that was needed was to obligate them in mitzvos. So that came about through a regular conversion, but there was no need to have Kikat and Shinola dummy. So this is a very nice explanation that makes a lot of logical sense as to why the conversion at Matan Torah was a regular conversion, but it did not have the aspect of rebirth of Kikat and Shinola dummy. When we generally think about conversion to Judaism, it's a fresh start for the convert. They're leaving behind their old life 
and they're assuming a totally new identity as a Jew. Now, the Rambam in Hilchos Yisurei Bia, at the beginning of Perak Yud Gimel, when he's discussing the laws of conversion, so he points out that the giving of the Torah, the acceptance of the Torah, was the model for all subsequent conversions. In other words, the Jews who accepted the Torah became Jews at that moment, and from there we derive the process by which a person can become a Jew throughout all of history. So the giving of the Torah was the ultimate conversion, and yet it's hard to imagine that that was a reflection of them becoming new people when at that moment they were accepting their destiny as the children of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They were intended from the beginning of time to receive and accept the Torah. So it's hard to imagine that the Jews at the giving of the Torah became new people and shed their whole history and their whole lineage. So this tension between was the giving of the Torah a moment of a fresh new beginning or was it different than subsequent conversions in that it was the Jews accepting their preordained destiny is what we're going to explore using the technical language of one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of all history, the Maharal. If you run a business, Bank of Clark County has you covered. Offering cash management services to automate and simplify your business banking, streamlined digital banking, and merchant payment processing that's a one-stop solution. Plus, Bank of Clark offers corporate credit cards that help you optimize capital, organize expenses, and enhance your business. Whether you're looking to earn points faster or lower your APR, Bank of Clark County has the card that's right for you. Member FDIC.